0: Hello, and welcome to
1: Season 5 of Mixtape Mixtape Memories. Memories. (laughs) I'm Jenners.
0: And I'm Matt Hart-Spade.
1: And we're here with a very, very special guest, Mike Doty. Welcome.
0: Hello. Thank you
2: very much. Good to be here.
1: Yeah. So you may know him from Soul Coughing back in the nineties. And but you know, maybe you know him from his prolific solo career as well. Yes. Or his latest project from 2020, Ghost of Room. So yeah, many we, projects yep, and um, yep, ways that's to go. Right.
2: <laughs> Lot to uh, lot to list. I'm doing uh, relatively well, I would say. Relatively well.
0: How about you?
1: Yeah, I know. As well as can be. <laughs> yeah, we're getting
0: yeah, yeah. by. Yeah, yeah, we're excited yeah, yeah. to have you as our first guest of, of the season. It's a nice way I'm, to kind of start things off. I'm I know. very pleased.
2: I'm glad to be here.
1: You're like a nineties OG, so <laughs> <laughs> You
2: know they call it the late nineteen hundreds now, so <laughs> yeah. they Feels do like that. for real. Yeah, yeah, it's, like, people are really saying that, which is like kind of uh, disconcerting to some, but I, mm. I'm amused by it.
0: <laughs> um, before we totally rewind, I'm just wondering how has the last year and a half been for you, and where are you in the world?
2: I live in Memphis, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, I mean, it was really great for a little while uh i'm like an isolator by nature i felt like i had an excuse and then i just kind of hit a wall like like right around like christmas of 2020 it just like something descended and i felt shitty but you know i actually put out a couple of uh records and a book in the midst of the pandemic Mm -hmm. which is not great for promoting records or books but uh you know, I wrote a ton of songs and collaborated with people. And so, you know, I kept my head above water in a, in a general sense, I feel.
1: You're like constantly writing songs, right? Because you have a Patreon yeah. and you're kind of writing for the subscribers there. What's yeah, that yeah.
2: like? The, <laughs> the Patreon is a song a week, a new song every week. Wow. Uh, yeah. And um, I have, since the pandemic, I have like a, Like a you know stack of like twenty, you know, so like I could take a nap for a few months and be fine. Um, But uh, yeah, you know, in in general, I just uh, you know make sure I start something and finish it uh, every week, and that's what. That's
3: amazing.
2: That's really how I make my living. Is you know, very small crew of people uh, listening to the the you know, this super new stuff.
1: And you were doing that way before the pandemic, right? Like, you were yeah. really building this up.
2: Yeah, I've been doing it for like four years. Like, when the pandemic happened, every musician I know texted me <laughs> and wanted <laughs> to know how I I have done it. And uh, it was it was uh, uh, satisfying to, to be the guy who was ahead of the curve. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, I like it cuz like I feel like like you bring your personality, you know, as well yeah. to like mm-hmm. everything and I think that's how you can really build like a loyal following that'll like support you and be there alongside you and you know, help you do whatever you need to do to like survive in these times. So, I think that's amazing.
2: Yeah, and it's good. It's good for artists um like not not just musicians, but you know, if you have an old body of work that you're known for, you don't really make a lot of money off it. I mean, I mm-hmm. guess unless you're like a super crazy superstar, but most people don't can't make a living off the stuff they're well known for. So it's a way of getting like that super small crew of people that are engaged in your new work to to um, to support you. Mm-hmm. And it yeah. feels amazing to like to to be, you know, paying the mortgage off new work that I'm doing every single week. And of course, Great. you know, you get on Twitter and it's all people that are talking about circles and super bomb bomb, which is fine. Mm-hmm. You know, I play old material, but um it really am, you know, sending a check to the bank every month, uh, because I have this Patreon.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, since you brought it up, and I feel like we can't not talk about the big 90s singles, can you kind yeah, of yeah. Dis- discuss how the Patreon kind of life and what you've built there compares to what like label life was like and like having radio hits in the 90s and just kind of compare and contrasting?
2: Well, I had a really good experience on Warner Brothers, mm-hmm. and not everybody had a great experience uh, with their record label, but Warner Brothers. Kind of had a shtick about itself that it was incredibly artist friendly. And like famously, they signed Prince when he was 18 and were like, oh, let's get your producer. And he was like, I don't need a producer. And they were like, okay. Which like no label ever would ever do. But clearly, um, you know, they, they did. he did well by them. So, you know, uh, they were really, really. Um, good to us um they paid for a lot of stuff um you know like not not only the fact that i have a career because they spent money just like i mean it costs a lot a lot of money to get into a van and tour nine months out of the year for two years Mm -hmm. it's it's like not cheap and they paid for it uh they paid for videos um as our productions got more elaborate they paid for that Um, it, you know, it's great having stuff paid for, and, um, I'm not sure I wouldn't want to be on a label now. Um, I actually am talking to labels, but there is this sort of delicate thing of like, like, I got to keep the Patreon going. I'm Mm -hmm. better because of Patreon, like a better uh, writer and singer and musician, everything. You know, back, back in the nineties, we were friends with a lot of people in like the British- Drum and bass world and in the techno world and we really envied them like you know they would record a single and it'd be out they they do a, a press a white label and give it to DJs and it was out and then the next week it would be in stores so we we really pined for that however like we had a way better label experience than the majority of people that that we knew. I mean, it's just like I got no complaints about that time,
1: yeah. I mean, you released like three albums, right? Mm-hmm. Three soul coughing albums on Warner. So I think that yeah, but it that is a unique story because I feel like you talk to so many people and they have awful stories. and so it's like kind of good to hear a good one.
2: yeah, <laughs> like, the yeah, anomaly. I mean, that, there were certain occasions where I look back and I was like, they should have yelled at us. like they should have <laughs> made us like where we just made stupid mistakes and they just went with us. And you know, I mean it, it beats the alternative of you know, like all the stories of I I hear of like, you know, people turning in albums and them getting rejected or you know, all the all the terrible stories that you hear.
1: Maybe it's because you're like a unicorn. <laughs> like I feel <laughs> like that your band was very distinct and like uh, something special, you know, that kind of stands out from the pack.
2: Well, so. I think cer- certainly they knew what they were getting. Yeah. Um, you know, and there was just so much they could do with it. And, you know, I mean, um, the other, we, we were technically signed to an imprint called Slash. Right. And uh, their other, uh, among their other uh, uh, bigish things was the Violent Femmes, mm-hmm. you know. And can you imagine someone going to the Violent Femmes being like, "You guys should have electric guitars," and like, <laughs> here, "You should put the," you know, like, like you you know what you're getting here. There's only so much you can do in terms of, I don't know, pressuring somebody to be um, commercial. But look, like, absolutely, you're absolutely right. But like. I just, uh, you know, it, it has a lot to do with Slash and Warner Brothers, and you know, if I can shout out people, Bob Biggs, Randy Kay, Stephen Baker, Peter Rao, like all all kinds of people, Lenny fucking Warnaker, you know, pe- people that were like really good to us.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I was hoping you could maybe touch upon kind of going into your solo career and you're very prolific. I mean, you've always been prolific, yeah. but I feel like in the aughts specifically, there was a lot of material. I remember seeing you at the Black Cat in D.C. Mm-hmm. on a very snowy night. I remember that maybe show. Like... Oh, you I do? I do remember that show. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, two ish, something like yep. that. And that was the first time I had seen you post soul coughing and um, it just felt very special because it was a journey to get to the venue that night and then it just felt very homey. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So yeah, what was that like kind of after the soul coughing days and then into releasing solo material and solo touring? Well,
2: I took a sharp left turn at at like in like, well, in like 97, I saw an Elliott Smith and Magnetic Field show at Fez, mm. um, which was wow. a club on Lafayette
0: Street. And there was fast. nobody
2: there, and it was like, it was like a CMJ show or something, and it, would, it was just mind blowing. And I was like, I'm gonna make that's
0: a dream. Bill, oh my
2: wow. god, <laughs> oh my god, and and they were not known bands, so it's like, yeah, I I'd never heard of them. So I was there with um, a friend, and you know, fucking the Magnetic Fields come out on stage and. You know, your mind is blown, and you're like, what the fuck? And then, Elliot Smith walks out. On, I mean, can you imagine? Like, can you imagine? It was, it was insane. And so that, and um, I was really into uh, Low, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Galaxy 500, and their producer uh, was a guy named Kramer, um, who was Kramer before the Seinfeld Kramer, Um, he had like this particular sound where he used these huge reverbs and recorded to this really saturated tape. And so I made an album called Skittish with him that I then released independently in 2000 when Soul Coffin broke up. And then I sort of doggedly pursued that, you know, foolhardy artistic change until I uh, got a whole new audience from it. Then I signed to ATO, Dave Matthews imprint. Put out three labels with them. Again, really good experience. Um, Both Warner Brothers and ATO got me on David Letterman. So, like, that's that's a dream come true. Great. I love being a guy that's been on Letterman twice. I mean, you know, (laughs) that's that's definitely a a, a notch in the post. Definitely. Um, Yeah. So, again, super good experiences.
0: You're lucky. It's, it's awesome.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. You know, I think also, like, I could tell I, I, I kind of made the right decisions in those moments. Mm-hmm. And I could focus on the people that I thought were going to help us out, help me out, help us out.
0: Well, we have to go way back and kind of ask about your actual mixtape memories and what you were listening to as a kid, as a teenager, in those kind of formative years. So um, could you kind of take us back to the early days?
2: Well, I had a pause tape, which was uh, a pause tape was you, you had a, a, a boombox, you put it on record and put it on pause. And then when you were listening to the radio, you would jump and hit the pause button and it would record whatever your favorite song was. And that was like 8th grade, 7th grade or something. Um, There was this amazing Run DMC PSA that is lost to time that I had on this pause tape. And I've never heard anyone talk about it. I've never seen it on YouTube. I'm going to uh, recreate it for you right now. Ooh. Okay. And I'm not going to do it in a Run DMC voice. I'm just going to recite it. The other day, I got word from my girlfriend, Sue. She said, I've got VD. You might have it too. I said, no way, no how. If I had it, I'd know it. She said, that's not always true because some people don't show it. I said, where can I go to find out if I got it? Well, you can get help free from the health department. Yes, if you're told you might have VD, the New York State Health Department says, check it out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, oh it's God. amazing, and so, like somebody's got to find that somewhere. And it was like when I became a hipster in my twenties, I got rid of all my corny '80s shit, which was a tragic mistake. <laughs> um You know, oh it, it looks.
0: We're gonna find it. I'm gonna find someone on Reddit who can somehow get it. S- someone has to find it. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, my gosh. So, no, I totally did that. I did totally remember, like, recording songs off the radio and making tapes, like, based on
2: that. And... Oh, yeah.
1: Were you kind of like someone who made mixtapes for people or and gave it to them or received mixtapes? Were you ever kind of in that?
2: Both given and received. I think every time it was someone that I liked that didn't like me – or someone like me who, and I didn't like that. Like, I can't, I can't remember, a, 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 any other situation of giving a mixtape. And yeah. uh, you know, we worked hard on him. not just the music, but the cover, of and course. you know, it was, <laughs> the
0: timing, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and
2: making it all fit and everything. Yeah, you had to make it, uh, you had to make this perfect little vessel. And uh, I wish I still had him you know
1: i know i still have like um all the mixtapes like um that i've got got, got like in high school <laughs> like, right just because like they made such an impression on me and i feel like they formed my musical tastes um because i wasn't like like nobody was buying me like you know cassettes or whatever Sure, sure. um so that that was how i discovered music so you know i just feel like um I'll probably have them forever. I don't know. I think it's hard to let them go for whatever reason.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah, I wish I wish I had not been such a fucking, you know, uh, I don't know, pretentious idiot and like, you know, been like, <laughs> "Oh, I I eschew my past and all the stuff that I have decided is not cool enough for me anymore." dumb thing to do. I mean,
0: I did the same thing. I threw away all of my cassettes. And then once things be once, you know, the iPod came out, I threw away all my CDs. So I didn't have anything physical. And it's funny now. I mean, over the last 1015 years, I've collected a lot of vinyl, of course, but like, I've started buying some 90s cassettes that I used to own way back and listen to them on the Walkman only because of like, Nostalgia's sake it's a very much like a tactile thing for yeah. me like i could press a play button and kind of be in that world again but no i wish i kept things i threw everything away yeah it's it's such yeah. a bummer
2: such a bummer um i've kept some cassettes i have like a like a little shelf of cassettes and like dat tapes from the 90s like in the studios digital audio tapes which were like little tiny things and you could fast forward mm-hmm. to individual locations and it was considered to be like the fucking future or whatever. (laughs) Um, yeah, I kept a lot of those.
1: Like what kind of music really made an impression on you? Like growing up, like from like a young age, like what are your kind of like earliest music memories and
2: my, my very earliest memory is listening to John Denver's greatest hits (laughs) when I was like three or four and I had one of those library box cassette players. And uh, my parents had this giant green Oldsmobile and you know it was like it was like longer than me on both sides in the back seat <laughs> and I just remember holding that to my ear and like getting like completely lost in in John Denver you know That was like Still your parents record wow. or something I feel like my well I had the cassette I feel like my and it was the early days of cassettes too like being able to buy a cassette at a, a music store and they must have bought me the cassette because they had a record player. They didn't listen to a lot of records, but they had, you know, like my mom had like whatever records you collected in the early sixties, which is like Joan Baez and mm. Bob Dylan, like that, that kind of stuff, which she never, ever busted out the records. My dad was into Willie Nelson. We listened to that sometimes. But yeah, I, I have no idea how I, I have no idea. How I got their cassette recorder, much less the tape. <laughs>
1: like when did you know like from there that you like wanted to be in music or did you know that you wanted to be in music
2: i remember this very desperate feeling starting to happen when i was like in seventh grade Mm -hmm. that i was like i have to do this for a living i have no idea how you do this for a living it's totally impossible i don't i didn't know anybody that could like teach me chords on a guitar You know, my parents didn't understand. I I had quit uh, trumpet in the school band in the seventh grade. And they were like, well, so you're not into music. This is just the thing you're going through. Because obviously, you'd be into your trumpet if you were a music guy. (laughs) So they they didn't understand. And uh, I never thought it was really possible, even though I was like forming bands. And, you know, I worked super hard when I got to New York as like a late teenager, um, super hard, like calling up clubs and sending tapes around and like, but I, I have to say, looking back on it, I never thought it would work. I, mm-hmm. I never like, it, even as hard as I was, I was working to make it work. I never really thought it would happen
0: for me. So what was the breakout moment? Like when did, did someone spot you or how did it all kind of come about with those, with the first release? We met
2: this guy, Solkoving had been around for like a year, and I should say I met this guy who wanted to make a video. And he was like right out of film school, like in Buffalo or something, and he'd moved to New York and he wanted to make a video. And he was like, All we need is five thousand dollars. And I was like, five (laughs) thousand like you know, (laughs) I was like twenty-two and like five thousand like okay, that's great. But he's like he's like, Well here's what I'll do. I'll get you a record deal and I was like, okay buddy <laughs> like do your best and he was just like a persistent guy and was just one of those guys that, that would be like uh, would be like you have to see this band. they're the greatest band in the whole world and like you know <laughs> could say that kind of stuff with a straight face And so the next show we did there were like 10 R people there. And wow. uh, it, was a f- it was a very fortunate time to be uh, trying to get a record deal because it was sh- a couple years after Nirvana had happened. They were, you know, this was like 93, so they were, they were still, uh, Kurt was still alive. And so what had happened then was uh, they had been blindsided by something they did not understand, the entire music business. it, it everything changed overnight. Um, famously, Geffen did not print enough CDs uh, yeah. for for mm-hmm. how big, you know. Which is an amazing story. Like they had they had really no idea, and so people were desperately looking for things that they could not understand. And so here comes Solkoffing walking into the fray, totally ununderstandable. But there were like hooks and stuff, and it was a compelling show. That being said, the guy who signed us to Slash, we were playing at CB's Gallery next door to CBGB's. He mm-hmm. couldn't get into a, a, to a John Spencer Blues Explosion show, and so he just he came next door and sat down, and we were playing, and that's that's really how we got our record deal. That's wow. amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, but I mean, you know, like we would have signed with one of these guy. Like um, this woman, Kate Hyman who now she's like a big deal in music publishing, but she was an a r at a label called Imago. So at that show where all those a people were at, I had heard her name because I worked at a club and she was on guest lists and stuff. So I knew she was like a, a big deal. And so she comes up and she goes, hi, I'm Kate Hyman from Imago Records. It was like, oh, hey, nice to meet you. You want to put out my record? And she goes, yeah, <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> so Done like like <laughs> what like what?
1: Amazing.
2: Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Well, I feel like we can't like not talk about the fact that like before Soul Coughing you were at knitting factory, which was
2: I you know. was at the knitting factory, yeah.
1: And like a lot of the band members, or maybe all of the band members were all of the there.
2: band members. I was just putting bands together. I was working the door at the knitting factory and I would just put bands together from, from people. Cause it was, everybody was like freelance and everybody was like playing in each other's bands and you know, it was very ad hoc. Yeah. And so I was just asking people that I met to be uh, in, you know, be on a show with me. And I would, you know, go to the guy who booked the shows at the knitting factory and get like Tuesday at 11 p.m., you know, something that nobody else wanted, and then we'd play to 10 people. And so I put like, I don't know, there were three bands called Soul Coughing, there were like 10 other bands called Other Things, (laughs) cycling through band names, and I would get on the phone for every show and call literally everyone whose phone number I had. Literally. People would be like, hey, man, we haven't heard from Molotov. i be like, hey, it's great to talk to you. So I'm playing on Tuesday night at mid, <laughs> like, like really, really hustling. And then like 10 people would show up. And wow. then one soul climbing show at the Knitting Factory, I was just like, fuck it. I'm so tired. I cannot do this. Fuck it. And 55 people showed up for that show.
0: Oh, wow. I know
2: it exactly because I worked the ticket desk and, you know, I looked at the little, you know, chintzy computer system, and i always remember that number, 55 people.
0: And, and it wasn't everyone you knew.
2: And it wasn't everyone <laughs> I knew. Well, I knew everyone, to be fair. <laughs> but th- they were all people that wanted to come, yeah.
3: who paid,
2: mm-hmm. you know, whatever it was, $8, yeah, yeah. you know, and 55 people, that, that's like the start of me, you know, doing this. For real. Wow. I love that.
0: That's awesome. Um, I know we wanted to touch upon New York venues that mean a lot to you. Mm. Uh, Outside of Knitting Factory, are there any that you've either performed at or seen shows at that really stand out for you from 80s, 90s aughts?
2: Well, it really, CB's Gallery, CB's 313 was such a spot. I think everybody that got booked in there Felt like they were getting like the like the lo-fi version of CBGB. Hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like it, Louise was the woman who booked CBGBs, and she was absolutely terrifying. <laughs> and you'd call, uh, you know, you'd send your tape and uh, call her up, and she would always be like, "Okay, call me next Monday." Click. And you'd call next Monday, and you'd be like, "Um, hi, so, you know, okay, call me next Wednesday." Click. You know, and 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 then eventually she was like, okay, call me on Saturday, but call me at this number. And she gave me a different number. And I remember calling up and I was like, hi, is Louise there? And the person on the other end was like, she's not here, but you are calling on the right number. So it was like, you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So she, she booked us at CB's 313 and there was like a whole scene that went on and they were like, basically any band with an upright bass And there were a lot of Mm -hmm. bands with upright bass and experimental bands and, like, that kind of stuff. It was a really, really good
0: scene. I wish I could have been there at that moment. Yeah. You know? It was a good moment, man. I didn't start going to CB's till later on. You never know when the good moments are happening.
2: (laughs) But then you look back and you're like, this was the moment.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Do you have, um, like, favorite memories from touring, whether it was Soul Coughing or Solo or...
2: Wow, it's all a blur. <laughs> it re- and it like little moments. The snow at that show in DC. Like I totally remember that. I
0: remember the veggie burger I ate that night. <laughs> um, it's so funny. I knew I was going to bring up that show, and I was like, "You've done twenty thousand right. shows. You're not going to remember that one." That's funny. And there's
2: <laughs> just little things that you remember, and you know, most of them you can't even connect to. Um, you know, a particular gig, but it's just all this kind of rolling fog of, you know, and I'm like, you know, I did six years touring Soul Coughing, 10 years touring solo, five years with a band, you know, several years with uh, my partner in Ghost of Room, Andrew Livingston, a.k.a. Scrap. Um, So, like... It's. uh I mean, to bring to to bring up a current memory, a current memory that's an oxymoron. Um,
0: <laughs> a current tour a, memory, a, yeah.
2: a, a recent tour memory, is Scrap, my who plays sometimes plays guitar, sometimes bass, sometimes cello, sometimes keyboards, depending on the gig or the recording. I don't call out the songs, I, you know, and I don't write a set list. We just sort of you know i just sort of play stuff and many many times we've played something and after the show i go we've never rehearsed that have we and he's like nope <laughs> He just like <laughs> there's never a moment where he's like what key is this in or how does this go or like he does somehow everything right you know he can hear where the chord's going before it goes there and uh that's a super cool experience Mm
1: -hmm. like i feel like finding that kind of bandmate or musical Mm -hmm. partner with the the right chemistry is so challenging so in a lot of ways that's pretty pretty awesome (laughs) yeah
2: definitely it's definitely a love connection yeah definitely like like we've been working together for like 15 years now so that was always the biggest
1: mystery for me like if i like watch like a band like rehearse or something and they're like writing, like working on a new song or something. And then like, I'm always like, how do you know what to play next? (laughs) (laughs) What's the next note? (laughs) Like, like, how do you, how does it happen that everyone just kind of comes in and does these parts and somehow they all gel together? Like, I feel like
2: I've always tried to work with people that you don't have to say a lot to. And so, if I play something, play with someone for the first time, and like before we really start playing, they start asking questions, I'm like, "Mm, I don't think this is going to work out. But if somebody, (laughs) if you just like start something and the guy's like, okay, uh," you know, just like, even if it's like the dumbest, most wrong thing possible, you know, I tell people like, take risks. You know, I would rather tell you to play less stuff than more stuff. You know, I'd rather you have weird ideas that failed than you kind of play it safe. Yeah. Um so like that's and that's just always been thrilling to me to really um you know, have another mind in in the mixture and uh you know, get get their fullest artistic whatever it is out of them.
0: What are your thoughts on kind of hitting the road again, not just post-pandemic, but post-touring for so, so many years. Do you have any desire at this point? Are you more comfortable kind of being at home, recording music for the Patreon fans and, you know, writing your books and so on? What, What is more preferable at this point?
2: I think a lot of people discovered, a lot of artists discovered that they actually spend money to be on the road. So I think a lot of us after a year, we're like, where'd all this money come from? Like, what, like, holy <laughs> shit, you know? So I think, you know, there is, there is, you know, I don't think any artist could survive if they did not tour at all. I think there are people that are going to be like, I don't want to go out on the road. I don't think I have to go out on the road. I think yeah, mm-hmm. I could, you know, just use social media every waking moment of my life the way I do and have the Patreon and it's a really small number of people that, provide me with the roof over my head and the food in my refrigerator. But I love playing live. I love being Mm -hmm. with Scrap. Um, Our drummer, Madden Class, she's, like, amazing. Love hanging out with her. Um, We have, like, this improvisation system that we use that's based on some old like john zorn pieces speaking of you know coming up in the knitting factory when it was an avant-garde jazz club yeah you know it's like hand signals that are like stop start change get louder get softer and you know you do that for a week's worth of shows and suddenly you're this finely tuned organism that can go in all these weird different places without a lot of discussion and i love that and we're so I'm I'm doing a weekly residency in LA in yeah. okay. January and February, where we're gonna do like mostly improvised stuff, and it's Madden's gonna be there, she's gonna be playing drums. Scraps gonna be there. I'm gonna be there, and then we're just gonna get a a rotating cast of everybody who's great in Los Angeles that's interested in doing this. However, it may um, it may just all you know come to nothing because of lockdowns. And, uh, and I've already paid for the Airbnb, so <laughs> if anybody I know wants to have lunch in LA in the first couple months of 2022, I'll be available. I'm also hoping, like like I know, you know, Curtin and Kristen from Hot Tub and mm-hmm. Paul F. Tompkins and like all kinds of people that put on Mark Marin. Uh mm-hmm. Liam Macanini, all kinds of people that put on shows, especially comedy shows. Yeah. Um, where they throw on a musical guest. I hope to do a lot of those and yeah, you know, I, I kinda get on the good foot and start sending some emails.
1: Yeah. I mean weirdly that I feel like that's how I met you is through the comedy. Indeed scene it is in New yeah. York. So yep. uh, I always found that fascinating, um, when comedians like kind of adopt like a, a, a musician yes. into <laughs> You know, the
0: group, and then it's yeah. like
2: me or Ted Leo, <laughs> exactly. And if you're famous, it's Amy Mann.
0: It's funny you mentioned Ted Leo because, first of all, we interviewed him last season, yes. and secondly, I the question I had about kind of pandemic touring kind of was spurred based on his response because he was kind of more skittish about going yep. out and whatnot yep. I think since then he's booked a couple things I know he's playing City Winery here in New mm-hmm. York yeah so that's kind of funny that his name got thrown into the mix <laughs> I
2: love playing those comedy shows I love comedians I've learned so much about rhythm from those people you know yeah. I, I've just like met so many cool people in that world so it's great because I have such admiration uh, for the artistry and I've learned so much by watching so many comedians but I have no interest in engaging in the actual art form which yeah. is which is amazing like being really into something and not wanting to you know pilfer and do your Although, own vibe
1: I feel like with Ghost of Room like there is like kind of a sense of humor in some of those lyrics oh yeah no, no 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 so absolutely like... but, mm-hmm. yeah yeah and like you know. there's
2: I could, you know, there's things about like how to land a punchline that work mm-hmm. perfectly in music, and yeah. you know which words to start, which words to end with, what you're going to repeat. Absolutely, I've got, I've gotten so much from from comedians. Absolutely. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, it says a lot about you as a musician too, because I've seen you on these comedy uh, lineups uh, where, you know there's a bunch of comedians, and then you go on, and you're singing, and then everyone's listening. I know.
0: You know? (laughs) Which, which... Yeah, you have a very, yeah, the crowd is at a comedy show versus the crowd at a typical music event. Very different. People talk at music shows. (laughs)
2: Yeah. And, like, nobody wants to shut people up. And it's always, like, you know, 200 people that are listening and two people drunk in the back that are talking, (laughs) and no one will throw them out. And it's just a total Mm -hmm. mystery to me, because it's, like you could do there's so many singer-songwriters in this world that would play so many more shows if they would just shut up the fucking one drunk guy <laughs> yes. you know and the one drunk mm-hmm. guy is gonna tweet like you know how dare they because it was a bar and like that's always he says it was a bar like yes it's a bar that people paid money to see music in and there's a yeah. lot of bars, man. <laughs> like take your pick. There's like two within walking distance. Like come on, man. Exactly. <laughs>
1: I just exactly. never I will never understand that. <laughs> yeah, it's,
2: like, it's so are you it's so here? terrible. <laughs> I think i the next time I do my manager suggested this. The next time I do an acoustic tour, I'm actually going to bring a bouncer.
3: Oh. Like I'm going to find a big
2: ass dude. <laughs> um did you ever did you ever go to largo in the late 90s maybe you both are too young for this i was in l.a yeah at that time yeah um so their thing was they shut up anybody who said anything and they made you and this was before selfies really before texting if they saw a phone they would like like oh what's that dude's name? He's such a good guy. He still works there. It's not not Flanagan, the other guy, um, who would like like I, I remember like turning to a friend of being like hey, we should get some pizza after. And he, <laughs> he like was on our table in our faces like do you want your money back? Because we'll we'll give you your money back right now. You can leave right now. And that's why that club is legendary. It's because yeah. they shut people <laughs> mm-hmm. up. Yeah. And everybody, I mean, that's why Fiona Apple started playing there and Amy Mann yeah. and, you know, John Bryan and all those people. It was because it was this amazing mixture of uh, comedians and musicians and other artists. And they were in a listening room where people were actually listening. So I wish yeah. somebody would, you know, I don't know, take their cue and have like a super successful club that everyone had wanted to go to. Maybe it's crazy. But uh, you know, I, I would think that would be good for a bar owner. You can start the mm-hmm. trend with your security guard, with my, my big ass bouncer. Come here, show them booths. how to do it. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Well, I don't know. Should we move on to repeat skip? It's I think. Why so. Why not? I feel I feel
2: like I'm
0: too verbose. In no, you're these great. I love, I love the all. stories. <laughs> and speaking of, we would love to know why you chose uh, the first album we're going to talk about today, which is the self-titled album from The Laws, circa 1990, 1990. which of course contains uh, "There She Goes," which is, you know, ha- has stood the test of time. Right. What's your memory of this band, of this album, and why did you choose it today?
2: I think it's one of the greatest rock albums. I'm just going to be a, a weirdo and say ever made. I think it's an incredible album that um, people just have not remembered. I mean, there's that Sixpence None the Richer cover of (laughs) There She Goes. But I mean, I think largely people don't even know that that's a Laws song. And every single one of those songs is amazing. The record hangs together as a record in a way that like some of my favorite records don't. I don't think Mm -hmm. there's a skip on there. Um, and the repeat is the whole album, like, <laughs> like for real, you know. I, I had a feeling you might say
1: something like that.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's. I, I just think like, if you're into rock music, if you're into songs, find yeah. the laws, man. It is a, it is such a great, underappreciated, album, and it seemed, it seemed like everybody, especially English people. I mean, they were from Liverpool. But, yeah. like, like all the Britpop bands and the English artists in, like, 95 were like, oh my God, the laws. Why doesn't anybody talk about mm-hmm. the laws? Nobody. And now nobody talks about the laws. And, uh, very true. Yeah. It's, like,
1: I mean, oh it my might God. have something to do with the fact that the singer, Lee Mavers, like, is. doesn't want to be, <laughs> like, in the spotlight when. Right. It's not very. Um, You know, like people always want him to put out music and new music, but he hasn't put out any new music since this album,
2: so. Not into it. And he's like, from what I hear, he's like sober and a dad. And um, I was in Liverpool and talking to somebody and uh, they were like, you know, oh, do you mean Lee Mavers? And I was like, you know Lee Mavers? (laughs) And I guess I could have orchestrated an introduction, but I'm, you know, absolutely terrified of meeting somebody that I, you know, quasi-idolized like that. But, yeah, I mean, you know, regardless of what he's doing now, that, I mean, that should be up there as a classic record. Classic, Mm -hmm. classic record. Mm
0: -hmm. Totally agree. Yeah, I mean, I think the album just, uh, to be honest with you, I haven't listened to this album in quite some time, and it does flow really beautifully. And I feel like there are a lot of those early Britpop kind of albums from the early 90s that... I don't know. It's very cohesive. Yeah, it, it just all makes sense, and it doesn't feel like there's the obvious skip. So I hear what you're saying yeah. about that. Yeah, absolutely. That said, I did choose to skip Looking Glass just because I felt like I don't know. Sometimes when there's a track on the album that's like kind of the closer. Yeah, that's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. The, That's like it goes on a little too yes, long. You kind of, Kind of lose interest. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: I it's, just I just find that like it's it's like. You know, I think you're absolutely right. It's a long-ass song, which is, like, completely uncharacteristic of... I mean, other than that, there's... I don't know if there's many tracks that go over two minutes and 30 seconds. Yeah, Um, yeah. Yeah, that song's probably, like, four minutes long, and after listening to the record, rest of the record, you're like, God, this is going on a long-ass time. (laughs) Um, But... (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, like, five minutes, maybe. Six minutes. But I I just find it's like a movie. I get to that point... Um, And it's also such a time travel record for me. And I'm I'm like, I'm not like a big time travel record guy where I'm trying to like, you know, like put on music that makes me feel like I'm living in 2002 or 1992 or 1982 or 1978 or whatever it is. I'm not that kind of a person, but always I put it on and it just goes back to like a certain magical time. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I think for me, I really got into Britpop uh, when it really made a splash here uh, in the States in the mid 90s uh, when I was a teenager and, you know, It was all Oasis, Blur, Elastica, all that stuff. For me, it's kind of a treat to go back to the stuff that was a few years prior because I didn't necessarily grow up with it. So I kind of have an adult appreciation for it versus when I listen to, you know, a a Blur album from the mid 90s and it's more nostalgia and I know every word. That's not the case with an album like this one because I didn't, I was too young when it was kind of all happening.
2: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I love it when there's like an old record that people's memories from it or from like 1997. You're like, oh yeah, you know, let it bleed. I remember being, you know, a college freshman in 2007 and you know, Um, but you know, music does that. It's not necessarily tied to its time, but to your time. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. so true. I I also want to say that if you're listening to this and you're like, that's a really solid endorsement for the laws, but I don't like Blur and Oasis or Echo Belly. Another band people should be talking about. Oh, it, it, it is yeah. so so elevated from. Oh, I mean, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. It is it's so, nothing. It's a, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. an entirely different
0: yeah. experience. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, clearly, all those Britpop people listened to it on repeat and you know took notes. Yeah. But it it really is like a like a a a, a great timeless statement.
0: Yeah, I feel like the the albums that came out around, I mean, and I guess I'm going to throw in the Stone Roses just because they were obviously a huge UK band at this moment as well. Uh, I feel like it was a lot more earnest and a little less ego than the Mm -hmm. mid-90s rip-pop acts, you know? Well,
2: it became like 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 the the sort of necessary stance, you know? Like if you were in alternative rock, you had to talk all the time about how you didn't want to be a rock star. And mm-hmm. if you were in Britpop, mm-hmm. you had to talk all the time about how you were the greatest band in the world. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, whatever the, whatever the, the, like, fashionable stance is, everybody had to take it. So I always take that stuff with a grain of salt. Yeah. Yeah.
1: For me, like, um, I don't even, like, associate, like, yeah, I wouldn't, even associate like the laws with anything like definitely not oasis because i just mm-hmm. i don't like oasis but mm-hmm. um <laughs> even though i know like i feel like lead Mavers and the gallagher brothers like know each other but like
2: so they got it.
1: um <laughs> but uh, for me it's like all oh, like that like 60s garage and some of the songs that i like really get into so for my for me uh i would like repeat like songs like feeling or failure mm. and then yeah just be basic and <laughs> like there she goes i mean honestly that pops up on my spotify all the time <laughs> and saw, it's, a, it's a great pop song it's
2: amazing it's an amazing yeah. song it's it, so like incredible <laughs> and um timeless melody on there is like it's like it's twin i feel yeah <laughs> um
1: and i like that he can go like both ends of like yeah, the yeah. vocal spectrum
2: where mm-hmm. it's like a little
1: deeper sometimes and a little higher and
2: yep 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 100 percent recommend
1: yeah and but i would i skipped like um maybe some of the like more repetitive songs like things that mm-hmm. weren't as dynamic so like i i would skip like liberty ship or like mm-hmm. In- doldrum it's almost like yeah 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 <laughs> You know, it's yeah, like kind of yeah. song. So, <laughs> but um, but for know. me,
2: it's there's two records that 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 if I hear one song come up on a playlist, I have to stop and listen to the entire album. It's this album and Led Zeppelin 4. Mm-hmm. Like the only albums that are that are like I mean, I'm trying to think of another one. Even Stone Rose's first album, which I absolutely love. Um, yep. I, there's like a skipper or two on there. These mm. these two albums, it's like, for me, no part is bigger than the whole. Like you mm. have to listen to, to the whole.
1: I like very kind of wonder what yeah. like because like Lee Mavers is like known for being such like weird obsessive perfectionist, and mm-hmm. I think that's why he didn't release any more albums. Is like I think um, I read that he was um, kind of obsessed with like maybe going back and re-recording this album (laughs)
0: because
1: he didn't think it was perfect. So I kind of wonder like which songs did he think needed some tweaking?
2: So, so here's the thing about that is that the record, they didn't finish the record. And so the label handed it to Steve Lillywhite, you know, like the U2 guy Mm -hmm. who mixed it in very Steve Lillywhite style. And I would hear Lee Mavers go, I don't like that record. I don't like it at all. I don't like it. I'd be like, well, that's weird. But now you can hear the first recordings and they are like so tough and clangorous and and there's like a little dissonance in them that you really go, oh, yeah, like this isn't what he meant at all. Mm. And I kind of feel guilty loving it as much as I do. Um, But, of course, I feel that way about like, you know, anything I've ever recorded that's, like, more than three weeks old. Like, I love it the day, and then I'm like, oh, my God, that's so terrible. Why didn't I do this, that, the other thing? So, I feel like I mean, it you're in- always
1: exploring different ways to, I feel like, perform or record your music because I feel like there's so many iterations of, like, your songs and all of your various releases over the years. So, I, I think that's cool when you can kind of take a song and reimagine it in a, in a different way or a different context and, and and it kind of has a different life because of that.
2: Well, I kind of, even though I was like a, a, a rap kid and a punk kid and an indie rock kid, pretty much everybody I knew was a jazz person. Right. And I worked at the Knitting Factory when it was an experimental jazz club for the most part. And um, so I learned kind of the way of being a musician through this genre where the, like, you know, nothing was set in stone, you know, it was kind of weird to try and make your live show sound like the recording you always had to do something to hit it in a sideways direction. And, you know, a composition was a very ephemeral thing that wasn't tied to any particular recording. And that's just, that's just how I learned. And, um, so I did, I did a show with, um, with Death Cab for Cutie once. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so check it out. Me, Death Cab for Cutie, and Lemony Snicket on accordion. <laughs> okay. Playing okay. Duran Duran's Hungry Like the Wolf.
0: <laughs> wow. Oh, oh. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't expect the end of that Yes, to, to be that. <laughs>
2: it, was, it was incredible. I don't know if there's a recording of it, but I'll never forget in rehearsal... Well, it's sound check. We're going through it. And, um, you know, I, w- I would start the song, and, you know, and um, Ben and I were both doing lead vocals. And they would always do the changes at the exact same time. And I would be like, what? Like, what? Like, w- <laughs> we could, like, hang out on this melody and we vamp for however long we want to and whatever happens. And they were like, nope, it's four bars. And then it's another four bars. And then it's six bars or eight bars. And they were very, like, like, um, arrangement driven recording Mm. driven they have a a a cover of um i want to be adored the stone roses yeah and they do Mm -hmm. it exactly like the recording and i mean Mm. it's a it's a fabulous art form takes an incredible amount of skill to do that but that's just not how i learned it
1: should we move on to your second pick (laughs)
2: let us let us
1: So, Tribe Called Quest, Low End Theory, from 1991. Yeah. Actually just celebrated 30 years. Um, Incredible.
2: Anniversary. Came yeah. out the same day as Nevermind.
1: I love that, by the way, yeah. I mean, so that's, that's so, so, crazy. so
2: weird, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And,
1: um, yeah, so tell us a little bit about why you picked this album and how it has influenced you and all of that stuff.
2: So, in the late 80s and early 90s, there was a club called Giant Step. It was like yeah. a moving club. And it would be, it was all like jazz sample based hip hop. And they'd like have a live saxophone player. Sometimes there'd be a band, but it really was a lab for this kind of sound. Um, and it was a great club. And like being at Giant Step at two in the morning was like the best place in the world to be. Um, and uh, this is the album that took that whole, you know, world of development. and, you know, it, it's it's the pinnacle of that. Mm. This album, like, changed my life. like I can't believe. Uh, the, the The moment when I first listened to the whole record was this drive from my girlfriend's house in Connecticut down into Manhattan. And I just was astonished the whole time. Yeah. Um, it's just like I remember every part of that drive, man, like the Merritt Parkway and you know, getting into the Bronx and, you know, going down the West Side Highway and you know, it's just such a moment for me. One of the great things about that album, about hip hop in general, is you can have a varied cast of characters. So like mm-hmm. Buster Rhymes is the star in scenario, and Sadat X is the star in show business. And so you've got the two main characters, but these other characters come in, come in the door, they leave out a different door, which I think is a tremendous advantage over rock music. And I, I remember, like, really, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I I really did not like going to see rock bands. I was just like, what the fuck? Like, everyone's (laughs) looking at this. Like, why aren't we looking at each other and dancing and going out and doing Mm -hmm. drugs and coming back and, like, you know, (laughs) doing a whole mix? Just was not interesting to me. Or, you know, improvised jazz music where everybody was doing something crazy and there was, like, suspense. Mm -hmm. So Thurston Moore told me to see Nirvana at CBGB like six months before Nevermind came out. I was working at the door at the Knitting Factory and he had done a bunch of experimental jazz things and I was a huge Sonic Youth fan, saw him a million times. I, I, you know, I was like trying to be like, oh, hey, hey, Thurston, what's going on, man? Hey, yeah, you're going to see, hey, you're going to see Charles Gale, huh? All right, that's pretty cool. Um, you know, <laughs> And I, I, I was like, oh yeah, I hear you're doing a, a duo improv show with, uh, uh, with William Hooker. He was like, "Yeah, but I w- I wouldn't go to it. I'd go see Nirvana at CBGB." And I remember just being like a rock band? Oh, you're <laughs> suggesting I go see a rock and so stupid. Like how could anyone be so stupid as to not see Nirvana at oh, CBGB? Oh, yeah. My oh my god. Wow. <laughs> like I wish I, I know it's yeah. it's like the mo- it's like such a moment of stupidity in my life, like unbelievable, yeah. <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah,
1: I wish. Uh, I know. Well, that was actually the first one of the first CDs I bought. I bought you Nirvana know, mm. and Cooley High Harmony
2: placed <laughs> to Man on the same day. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I re- I remember the first time I heard "Smells Like Teen Spirit," and yeah. uh, you know, I'm not a, like a Nirvana guy per se. Would have loved to see them live, but that song just changed everything. Yes, and it I was know. the f- yeah. it was the first time in my life I didn't have to buy the cassette because you would turn on MTV and it would always be on, <laughs> and
0: yeah, I would yeah.
2: always crank the TV until it sputtered, and I absolutely loved it. But it was like it, it was like something that had never happened to me in the culture before. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, it's such a contrast to the Tribe album, though. It's Mm. like, and and in a lot of ways, like, you know, this is just, like, the album of theirs that everyone talks about. Did you have any kind of particular attachments to certain songs on the album or, like, that kind of influenced you? Because, like, for me, I can see how... You would like this album, you know, given like this, the kind of music that you were like, putting yeah, out. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that... like, I
2: did everything to try and rip this off <laughs> and like blend it, blend it with like a knitting factory aesthetic. But 100%, I was like, I want an upright player, I want to have break beats. Like, I like really, really, really wanted to 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 do that, yeah. Mm.
1: So, like, yeah, I guess, like, when a did you have repeats? Did you have skip, any skips on the album? Anything like that? Or were, is it kind of like, I love every song kind
2: of thing? It, that, you know, it's funny, but no. Um, there's a, you know, it's got a really nice structure as a narrative. Mm. Especially like Excursions, the first track into bugging Out. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Like where vibes and stuff is in the record is this kind of like, kind of weird, cloudy, spooky party thing. Yeah, that's vibes and stuff. That is is the one that's always on a playlist that I'm always repeating over and over again. But like, there's a song called uh, "Date Rape" on there, which oh, is yeah. like, yes, I can't I can't <laughs> even tell if he's like pro or anti date rape. But I'm just like I think I
0: infamous don't... date rape. yes. Yeah.
2: I think that's the Dude. problem
1: with that song is that you just can't tell. Like, it kind of seems like he's like anti, yeah. and then yeah. at the end he's kind of maybe going backwards on that a little bit. I don't know. But it was a
2: different time, you know? I made an excuse my whole life that it was like, oh, this is his anti-date rape song. (laughs) But, that's what people claim but you
1: know. I, i'm not so sure like you know we've listened to albums on the podcast before that didn't like age too well <laughs> you know mm-hmm. like like you 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 liked it at the time and then you listen to it now and you're like mm, it's a little cringy yeah. <laughs> and that's yep. that's kind of mm-hmm. how i felt when i listened back to this song um you know current day for the preparing for this i
2: was like ooh.
1: I don't know about that one, and I
2: don't—I just don't think it's even that good, really. Yeah, particularly, you know. I mean, they uh, were trying to
1: be like, you know, social, you know, issues and stuff like that, but I don't know that this was so successful.
2: (laughs) No, no, absolute skipper, absolute skipper.
1: Yeah, that same for me. That's the one I picked, but I felt like so much of the album until you get to the very end. Has like a very similar sound mm-hmm. to it, yeah. you know? Yes. Like yeah. you can breeze through it and then all of a sudden like scenario comes on <laughs> and you're just uh-huh. like, whoa. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for me, and also just because I have more memories attached to that particular song because it was like the, the hit and like Buster mm. Rhymes was on it and all this stuff. I feel like that's the song that I would go back to. But I feel like that's such a basic choice. <laughs>
2: well i mean you put that on at any party and the dance floor fills up yes yeah you know like it's it's and it's just so like weird and rocking and like what the hell was buster rhymes doing like like row row like a dungeon dragon like like it's just you listen to it you're like what is going on what is he doing but it's so amazing just like Busting the genre in half and rebuilding it is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. No,
1: I mean, like, he's had that sound, like, and you could always tell when it's him, like, on a song. He just Mm -hmm. has, like, that energy, that sound to him. So it's.
0: Yeah. I heard someone recently on um, a YouTube series that I watched discussing um, a hit he had much later on, um, Put Your Hands Where My Eyes Could See. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, like... Yeah, like he, there is something. Even though recently he said some things that have been problematic, oh, let's sure, disregard sure. that. Yeah. He just has such a um, a unique, specific sound, and his flow is awesome. Yeah, I mean, I don't have too much to add about this record. I just kind of think it's it's pretty solid through and through. It's 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 also an album that I feel I only really appreciated in my adulthood. I was a little young when this came out. Other than the date rape song, <laughs> and I feel like it's yeah. it's pretty solid. My repeat is Excursions actually. Oh yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, like this is like a like one of those quintessential albums that people will be talking about like every yep. like anniversary year.
2: Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah.
1: I think it's cool like that a group like this kind of was trying to because I feel like um rap these days not too much social commentary on it so they were a group that really was trying to um make some kind of positive statements or like kind of Mm -hmm. social commenting Mm -hmm. on social change and stuff so
2: and they weren't talking about money
1: they they were not
2: talking about like it was Mm -hmm. not. i mean it not that they didn't have lyrics about money but it was it wasn't like like there was it wasn't like a heavy presence in the content was, by the way, let me tell you about how much money I have. Like, <laughs> by the way, right. hang on. I have a whole lot of money, which is just, <laughs> you know, like I'm white. So it's a different thing for me, but I've just always found that dull. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, Oh, like it's have always been like, okay, fine. Like anybody in the world literally can stub their toe on a bag full of money and they're rich. But yeah. if you're an artist, you have something that nobody else has. Yeah. Why aren't you talking yeah. about that rather than your fucking car? Yeah. <laughs> right. Right.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, lyric, r- lyrics and rap songs these days, like, not the great. You know, not very like um, substantial su- substance to it. You
2: know? <laughs> I mean, there's a look. There's a lot. There's a lot of great rap music. Yeah. And even even some of it that I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever are often just incredibly talented artists incredibly good records um i'm still like all up in the rap caviar playlist every week (laughs) Uh um you know and you know like i don't don't want to like poo poo the genre because of one little content element at all
1: yeah yeah It's, it's uh it's just yeah, it's just different. It's I just think like sometimes they're um, they can be like super misogynistic and oh, like, sure. you know, like all mm-hmm. sorts of problematic stuff. But when you find gems that kind of go beyond that, it's kind of mm-hmm. nice. So I think that's why like you know with like the latest little Nas X single, like it's it's interesting because. Um, there is such emotion to it, which I mm. didn't expect, <laughs> yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, yeah. and 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 that's, like, um, something that I can connect to, right? It's, like, right. even the way he ends the song and just, like... So, to me, I like people who are, like, trying to change the game or, like, do something different and, yes. mm-hmm. and you know... It's very similar to, like, you know, like, how your career started. You had a very, like different kind of sound and 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 people grabbed onto it and I think what when I listen to music if I'm listening to somebody that is really just trying to do something that's just their own thing then I can like really appreciate it of a course. lot more because yeah, yeah. I feel like they're trying to push the artistry, you know.
2: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Not just
1: there to make some coin. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah. No. thanks for choosing this i mean we don't really dig into a whole bunch of classic hip-hop releases and this was kind of like the pinnacle yeah so, yeah um, it's
1: perfect it is
2: so the, like this it. nation of millions i yeah. mean there's a couple other that are like greatest albums of all time rap yeah. albums yeah
1: Well, thanks so much for coming to join us on the pod. So great.
2: Thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure.
1: (laughs) And um, so you have, you know, your residencies possibly coming up in the new year. And is there anything else you want to kind of
2: promote? Well, Ghost of Room is my new band with Andrew Scrap Livingston. Uh, We make our records with Mario Caldado Jr., the sort of famed for his Beastie Boys productions. In the late 1900s, <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, I mean their their records were really proud of, and especially if you like soul coughing and you're yeah. like, why did this guy go acoustic? There, I, I really strongly hope you you listen to him.
1: Yeah, because it's like the name of the band is based on the yeah. first album name. Yeah, refers from, to yeah yeah. yeah. So, oh yeah. Um, so there's more releases coming up for Ghosts of Room.
2: Yeah, we have two out. We have a, an album and an EP. And then uh, we, we're just finishing up Ghost of Room 3. Awesome. Yeah. Yay, Great. more
1: look, to look forward to. Well, thanks for coming to join us on this episode. And we will catch you
3: next
0: time. Bye.
3: Bye. Bye.